And welcome to the first real episode of the Basic Christian Doctrine podcast. I'm sitting in my office at 8.30 on the last Friday of our extended spring break. Uh, Just recently received the news that Dos Amigos is closing, at least for a time, which means that Dollar General is the best place in town to get burritos now. Sorry, Sonic. Uh, So that's how my morning's going. Hopefully you're having a better morning. And if not... Uh, We can start in kind of a bad mood because today we are talking about the doctrine of atonement. And at least for today, the lecture is going to follow pretty closely to the typical PowerPoint. So if you want, you can pause this and download that PowerPoint from Canvas and follow along. The reason it's appropriate to talk about the doctrine of atonement today is that atonement refers to the work that Christ did to overcome sin and evil. So the loss of a quality burrito is the least of our problems in the big scope of things. Atonement is actually a word that theologians invented when they were translating some Greek and Latin vocabulary in the English Bible. Uh, Early translators combined the words at and one uh, with the suffix ment. So it's the process of being made at one with God. It's what Christ did to reconcile us to the Father. Um, To use the language of Fairburn, uh, it's the work of Christ that restored us to relationship with the Father, that looks like the Father-Son relationship. Now, typically when I teach this in class, I will pass out Bibles to folks and put a big list of Bible verses up on the board. And I'll ask groups of students to sort through those verses and see if they can group passages that have a similar theme. Because you see, the Bible talks extensively about Christ saving us, and it does so with a number of different images and concepts. And yet it's actually pretty rare for any single book of the New Testament or any single chapter of the New Testament to exhaustively explain how it is that Jesus dying on a cross saved us how it is that his resurrection changes our life. So we get a lot of information, but not a clear theological theory. So an atonement model is an explanation of how at least an aspect of Christ's work affects us. Typically, these models draw on one pattern of scriptural teaching that we might find. And though some might emphasize one model and deny the others, most would say that all of these models are showing us an aspect of the truth. Now the good news is, in comparison with the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the atonement is a little bit easier to keep track of. So this doctrine um, you can lay out in a logical form. If we know what the problem is, then we can figure out what the solution to that problem is, and from the solution, we can then figure out the benefit. You can also work backwards. If you know the benefit, then the opposite of the benefit must be the problem. So if you're taking the test and you remember only a part of the model, you can probably reason through it to understand the rest. So let me return to my complaint about burritos here. Um, And I don't mean to trivialize the loss of Dos Amigos, particularly for those who work there and for the owners. This is certainly something that's a big loss for them, and I do hope that they're able to come back quickly. Um, But uh, using it as an example, if our problem is the loss of quality 
uh, Mexican food in town, then a solution to that might be opening up a new restaurant or bringing in catering from another town once in a week. The benefit would then be that I have good food to replace the old. But if we stop for a minute and we pivot and look at the same situation from a different angle, we could say, no, the real problem is actually that the owners of Dos Amigos have just lost their income. In that case, the solution might be to find them an alternative job. And the benefit might be that they're now gainfully employed. The same situation can be looked at from different angles so that when we identify different problems, a slightly different solution is needed. The same thing is true for our atonement models. Each model will start with a slightly different aspect of what sin is, and based on that different understanding, it will propose an alternative solution. So let's turn now to our four atonement models, and we will start with the model known as the moral exemplar model. So if you're following along on your PowerPoints, I have a list of Bible verses there that are a pattern we found in the Bible presenting Jesus as our example. Uh, consider 1 John, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Or Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness. There are more passages I could read from the slide, and even more you could find throughout your Bible. But some theologians draw on this pattern and say that one problem that we have is the fact that due to sin, we sometimes do not know right from wrong. Even worse than that, I don't have a reliable moral example that I can look at. So I can't turn to Jared or turn to Casey and say, well, everybody just do what Casey does. Everybody do what Jared does, and we'll be okay. Because while they both seem to be pretty good individuals and they haven't done anything directly evil to me or in the class context, the truth is that we've all sinned. And so if you follow anybody's pattern consistently, you're going to end up copying their sins. So we don't know right from wrong and we don't have any reliable role model. The solution to this, the moral exemplar model says, is that the son came in human form. Now, each of these models is based on the doctrine of the Trinity and on the doctrine of the hypostatic union. So the fact that the Son is fully God, one person of the singular divine being, and the fact that while he is fully God, he is also fully human. Both of these ideas are necessary for these models to work. In this case, because the Son is fully God, we know that he is fully good. He actually is a perfect example for us. Now, if he was only God, he wouldn't be much of an example. I can't follow God's example and create a universe. I can't follow God's example and sovereignly guide the events of history. But when Jesus Christ, the eternal divine Son of God, was born in human nature in the first century, suddenly he is also human and doing human things. That means that he can now be a role model for me, and I can follow his example in doing the human things that he did in his life on earth. So the benefit for me is that now I have clear knowledge of the good. If I want to know what to do, I follow Jesus's example, which is why when I was in high school, there was a brief trend of these little what would Jesus do bracelets, WWJD. I never had one myself, but 
maybe they're still around occasionally. That idea is the moral exemplar model in a nutshell. And it's often associated with a theologian named Peter Abelard. Aside there, if you want some scandalous reading about medieval theologians, Peter Abelard is your man. Feel free to do a Google search one day when you're bored uh, during your online schooling. It involves all sorts of crazy things, adultery being uh, mugged and assaulted. Um, and I won't spoil the ending, but uh, go Google it. All right, second atonement model. The second atonement model is known as the Christus Victor model. And this draws on a pattern of scripture that emphasizes Jesus's victory over different powers. Sometimes, as in first, excuse me, as in Colossians 1, it's victory over the dominion of darkness, so Satan and demons. Sometimes, as in 1 Corinthians 15, it's victory over death. Death is defeated by Christ. Now, early Christians tended to draw repeatedly on these images to explain the gospel. But it's interesting that very few of them spent time to develop an extensive philosophical explanation of precisely how this worked, until a Swedish theologian named Gustav Aulen, uh, in the last hundred years or so, wrote an explanation of what these early Christians typically preached. And he called this model Christus Victor, which is just Latin for Christ the Victor. Aulen says the starting point for many of these early Christians is the idea that we are captive to sin. I want to do good, and yet I can't do it, Paul says in Romans 7. Uh, I like to share the example of my only fight I've really been in that was worth anything. In high school, I was just newly getting interested in Christianity. Um, I was a sophomore, and I went to this church camp that my mega church would put on. And when you were freshmen, the seniors tended to come and haze the freshmen. Nothing too terrible, but still not very pleasant. And so sophomores were pretty pleased they were no longer the bottom of the food chain, and so they typically would go in and try and do a little something to the freshmen as well. I thought this was dumb. I didn't care to do this. And even worse than that, the, the sophomores who decided what we were going to do said, let's just go in and like beat on them with pillows. I thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, what are we? This is like some kind of weird, I don't know. It was bad. Well, I succumbed to peer pressure, went along anyway, didn't even want to be there. And there was this one freshman that had had enough from the senior. So when we came in, he decided it was a good idea to tackle me. Now, I knew at this point, even though I'm probably only a month or two a Christian, I knew at this point that you should turn the other cheek. I knew that it was dumb for me to be there. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to fight this kid. I didn't even know who he was. And yet my body instinctively, reflexively led me to punch this guy because he tackled me. Mentally, I didn't want to do it, but my body automatically did it. We can't always control our actions. We are captive to sin. Uh, if you want to know who won the fight, I'm going to go ahead and say I did because I landed the one punch before people pulled us apart. But uh, that's my epic fight from high school rooted in a church camp pillow fight. Yes, I think I have lost all of your respect. So let's go back to the model. Maybe you'll respect Alan's ideas instead. Sin is something we are captive to. Death is something we're captive to. We're all going to die. So what's the solution? Jesus comes, the eternal divine son comes in the flesh, 
and lives a life entirely free of sin. He dies, but then he rises from the grave and comes back. Through these two acts, he has defeated sin. He's the first human to ever not sin. He has defeated death. He's the first human to permanently come back from death. And the good news is, through something known as the doctrine of union that we'll talk about later on, the Holy Spirit can help us to share in the Son's victory, so that sin and death begin to lose their power now, but will one day fully lose their power when we are resurrected in bodies that cannot die and that cannot sin. And again, this is based in the doctrine of the hypostatic union. For if the Son was not divine, he could not be victorious over sin and death. But if he wasn't human, he couldn't die and be tempted in the first place. God doesn't die, but when the Son took on human flesh, he could die. So that's the Christus Victor model. If you're following along on your PowerPoint, the next scriptural pattern is that of purchase. Language like Mark 10's claim that Jesus was our ransom, or 1 Corinthians 7 saying we were bought with a price, led theologians to wonder, how is it that somebody's death paid for me? And who exactly is it that was paid? The most famous explanation for this scriptural pattern of Jesus somehow buying us comes from a man named Anselm of Canterbury one of the most important medieval theologians and philosophers in the Christian church. If you take philosophy classes at a state school like I did, you will still encounter some of his philosophical arguments, whereas typically theologians aren't much addressed in a public education philosophy context. So you know he's a pretty big deal. When he explains the problem of sin, he emphasizes the fact that we have broken the law. And there are consequences for breaking the law. There is a debt that must be paid. In this case, by breaking the law, we have dishonored God, saying we value our own preferences more than him. And so we must give God something in order to restore, repay that harm that we have tried to do to him. Now, there's a problem here. We can't give God anything that's not already his. I can't pay back a debt to God from anything I have because he already owns all of it. It's like if I borrowed money from Nathan and said, okay, you know what? Um, I'm going to pay you back now, but can I have 20 bucks to pay you back? He would not be impressed and he would not count the debt paid off. Same situation here. Well, why doesn't God just forgive us? That's our second problem. God is perfectly just. And if we do something evil, and if we incur a debt, Anselm says it's not just to fail to repay that debt. But the good news is God is also perfectly good and merciful and gracious, so he wants to solve this problem. And Anselm says the only way that he can restore a relationship with us is if the son pays the debt on our behalf. So here's how that works. The divine son, Jesus, takes on flesh and lives a sinless life, never sinned once. Now here's the thing, Romans teaches that the wages of sin is death, which means if you don't sin, you aren't obligated to die. And yet, because Jesus was obedient to the Father, people in his era hated him, 
and killed him anyway. Now, Jesus said before he died, I could summon legions of angels to protect me and you could do nothing to me, but I'm not going to do that. He voluntarily died in order to show how much he valued obedience to the law. Now, here's the catch. When he died, he gave something to God that he didn't have to. The language typically used here for this is that of a supererogatory gift, a gift above and beyond what is required. You might remember my story about my high school friend who got his girlfriend of two or three years a smelly jelly jar for Valentine's Day as an example of someone who's not giving the love that they owe someone. Not that he had to pay a certain amount, but he didn't even put any thought into the gift. Now, if we went on the other extreme and he bought his girlfriend a car and carved her a giant marble statue of himself, we might say that's above and beyond what's required. And, and frankly, the statue part's a little bit creepy. That would be an example of a supererogatory gift. So here, the supererogatory gift is the son giving his life when he did not have to in order to honor the father. And because the son is fully divine, that is a gift of infinite value. So what's the benefit to us? Well, a gift above and beyond like that earns a reward. But here, the son already has everything of the fathers. He is part, he is a person of the single divine being that is the Trinity. There's nothing he needs to receive from the father. So he says, take my reward and give it to my fellow humans. And that reward is our justification. A doctrine we'll talk about later which says that we now have the son's status of being perfect in the father's eyes. So that's the satisfaction theory of atonement. For each of these models, you're going to need to know the problem, solution, and benefit, as well as how they're based in the hypostatic union. But for this model, you should also know the vocabulary word of supererogatory gift. Okay, final scriptural pattern is that of substitute. We see... The idea in John 1 of Jesus being the Lamb of God, referring back to the sacrificial system where the Lamb would take the sins of the people upon itself. Galatians talks about Christ becoming a curse on our behalf. Drawing on this language, some theologians have developed what's known as the penal substitution model, often associated with John Calvin. Now this problem says that sin results in our being cursed or are being punished. Here again, it would not be just, this model says, for God to not punish those who've deserved it. So if I imagine Arnell um, stealing Micah's laptop, she's probably gonna be pretty upset. Um, if I said, well, you know, I saw it happen. I had the ability to do something about it, but Arnell's a pretty cool guy. I'm gonna let it go. That would be unjust. Similarly here, if God has seen evil done and just waves the penalty and lets it go without doing something about it, Calvin and others would argue that that is unjust. But at the same time, the punishment that we have for sinning against an infinite God is infinite, which would mean we could never move beyond that punishment to be restored to the Father. God doesn't want that either. So the solution is that the Father sent his Son to take on human form as our human representative. It was humanity that must be punished, and so the Son had to be human in order to take our place. And then the Son was punished instead. The benefit here is that we no longer face the consequences of sin. 
And again, this is rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union. He had to be fully human and fully divine. If he was not human, then he could not bear that punishment. But if he wasn't divine, if the infinite weight of God's wrath were poured on anything that was not divine, it would annihilate it, if not spaced out over time. Calvin and others would say that full weight was borne by Christ for the short time he was on the cross. Only God could bear that. This depends on the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit agree eternally to resolve the curse in this way. <laughs> Taken together, we receive the benefit of no longer being punished ourselves. So those are the four models of atonement. Typically, the Eastern Orthodox Church emphasizes the Christus Victor model. The satisfaction theory tends to be emphasized in the Catholic Church. Penal substitution tends to be emphasized in more conservative and fundamentalist Protestant churches. Remember our discussion about fundamentalism. And the moral exemplar model tends to be emphasized among Protestant liberals. Though again, I believe all four teach us some truth about an aspect of Christ's work. That's all the new content I have. We'll have an opportunity for you to do a question and answer on it through GroupMe and through Zoom. Uh, plus, there's the discussion forum set up that will allow you to try and apply these to what it means to be a Christian. But if you want one more review exercise and are following along in your PowerPoints, beginning on slide 13, I have a number of hymns that are present here. Uh, now, those hymns... Um, each draw on imagery related to one of these atonement models. So what you can do is read through and see if you can figure out which atonement model is illustrated in each hymn. And I'll try and give you the answers to this exercise next week. If I forget, somebody please remind me. Let's do it through announcements on Canvas. So all the best to you. I hope you are finding ways to be entertained and to be productive and to be happy and to be at peace wherever you are. And if I can help in any of those ways, please reach out to me and let me know. All the best until our next episode. Signing off from the BCD podcast. This was your professor, Glenn Butner, that hopefully you've not forgotten. See you soon.